People have always told stories. Tales of princesses, knights in shining armor and everyday heroes. We in the Satanic Player Society tread a darker path. Join us as we bring you creatures of the night, the things lurking in the shadows, and the untold horrors of your mind. If you are brave enough, spend some time with our myths, legends, and monsters. Hello and welcome to another episode of Myths, Legends and Monsters. In today's episode I'm going to talk about changelings. The idea of changelings has been a widespread belief in Europe starting from the early Middle Ages with certain local variations. The concept, however, remains the same, which is that a baby has been swapped with a non-human baby. The reasons for swapping a baby were numerous. It could be done out of malice, out of jealousy, wanting their child to get the human upbringing, diluting the bloodline, or using the human baby as a servant while the other baby got a comfortable upbringing. In English, Irish and Scottish lore, the baby was usually swapped with a fairy. These fairies were not the kind of fairies that comes to mind today, like Tingling from Peter Pan. They were more remindful of tricksters who could be potentially dangerous. Fairies were said to adore anything beautiful, and as they and their own children were not beautiful, they would often swap their own with a human baby. The changelings were described to have ugly features with big staring eyes, lean bodies and having ferocious appetites. The usual way to ward off changelings would be to place some sort of plant or herb near the baby, and later on as Christianity gained a foothold in Europe, it was said that the fairies could be warded off if a cross or a bible or certain icons were placed nearby. Yet another method was to have the mother watch over the child and to never go to sleep unless someone else was watching it. Most important of all was to have the baby baptized. And this is a clear example of Christianity adopting local legends and beliefs in order to convert people more easily. Those were some of the methods of prevention, but what would you do if you already had a changeling? Well, there were different methods, often involving abuse, such as threatening to roast the baby, or actually roasting it, throwing it in water, abandoning it in the forest, or simply beating the baby. The logic behind this was that the changeling's parents could sense when their own offspring was in danger and would then swap the baby's back. Another method was to make the changeling laugh or become surprised as it was thought that they were much older than they appeared. One example of this can be found in a Brothers Grimm story where the changeling is caught because it starts to laugh at the mother brewing water in eggshells. I'll read it to you, it's a very short story. The woman whose child they exchanged by the Brothers Grimm. A mother had her child taken from the cradle by elves. 
In its place, they laid a changeling with a thick head and staring eyes who would do nothing but eat and drink. In distress, she went to a neighbor and asked for advice. The neighbor told her to carry the changeling into the kitchen, set it on the hearth, make a fire, and boil water in two eggshells. That should make the changeling laugh, and if he laughs, it will be all over with him. The woman did everything just as her neighbor said. When she placed the eggshells filled with water over the fire, the blockhead said, Now I am as old as the wester wood, but have never seen anyone cooking in shells. And he began laughing about it. When he laughed, a band of little elves suddenly appeared. They brought the rightful child, set it on the hearth, and took the changeling away. In Scandinavian lore, the baby was often swapped with a troll. The trolls shared the same motives as the fairies, but it was also said that trolls were envious of humans and thought of us as a beautiful and noble race. There are many Scandinavian stories involving trolls and changelings, but some of them have a happy outcome. Selma Lagerlöf wrote a story about a changeling whose mother refused to abuse him, despite the father begging her to. The father took off and went into the woods where he met his real child. The child explained to his father that, since his mother had been kind to the changeling, the troll mother had been kind to him as well, and had now decided to let him free. There are many stories to be told of changelings, but they all carry a dark history. The fact that there are so many stories out there of changelings suggests that they were using these stories to justify the atrocious treatment of infants. There is proof that these stories are not just stories, but that a great number of infants were in fact murdered, or at the very least treated cruelly. There are court records between 1850 to the 1900s in Germany, Scandinavia, Great Britain and Ireland where people were convicted of having tortured or murdered infants based on the belief in changelings. There is also a recorded case from 1690 in Sweden of a 10-year-old boy being abused and left to die on the basis that he was a changeling. He was a sickly child and probably malnourished as well. His parents had left him on a pile of manure on Christmas Eve, thinking that the elves would swap back the real child. The child died of exposure, and his parents were convicted of murder. Not only babies were accused of being changelings, but much older children and sometimes adults could be victims of superstitious beliefs. From the local historian's table book of remarkable occurrences, volume 2, there's a note on a dwarf named Robert Elliot. He was known as Little Hobby O'Castleton. He was thought to be a fairy changeling. He carried a small knife with him as he was often taunted by others and wouldn't hesitate to chase after his tormentors, but he never caught up to them. Robert heard rumors that his neighbor William Scott was spreading lies about him, which prompted him to invite William to his home. When William entered, Robert pointed at two pistols and two swords and demanded a fight. William backed away and ran off, and when later asked why he ran off despite being physically larger and much more powerful than Robert, he said that, quote, As powerful as he was, his heart nearly failed him when the deformed being so suddenly disclosed his plan of gentlemanly adjustment. End quote. 
The other stories that end with a happy ending, where the rightful child is returned to the parents, could be a symbol for wishful thinking. The changelings were often described as being ugly, fussy, and wanting a lot of food, which could be a way of describing children with disabilities. In Scandinavian lore, as previously stated, the babies were often swapped with trolls. Now a troll doesn't convey an image of beauty, as it is still used today to describe someone we think are ugly. Another reason for torturing or murdering one's own babies could be due to the fact that life was hard for poor families. Having another mouth to feed, particularly one who could not contribute if it was ill, had to go. It sounds cruel, because it is, but such was the way of life. In many of these stories we can see that the parents often consult another member of their society, indicating that the parents were often uneasy about mistreating the baby and sought approval from the community in which they lived. I suppose it's easier to deal with shared guilt than having to carry it alone. Changelings have a modern impact and not just a historical one. Angelina Jolie starred in the movie titled Changeling, portraying Christine Collins. It's about a real case where Christine's son went missing, and the police presented her with a boy who was not her own. It's linked to the Wineville chicken coop murders, and it's quite a sad and disturbing story. There's another movie that I would personally say is linked to Changelings. In the cult movie Labyrinth, starring David Bowie as the Troll King, he snatches a baby, although he doesn't replace it. And I can see some similarities between this movie and the Scandinavian lore, as it involves trolls and baby snatching. If you haven't seen it, you should. It is great. There are also changelings in nature. We have the cuckoo birds who often place their eggs in another bird's nest, leaving other birds to raise their offspring. The cuckoo chick will often push out the unhatched eggs or the other chicks and hog all the food for itself. In conclusion, advances in science combined with making education accessible to the general population made people understand that changelings were not a real thing, and it eventually allowed for a fairer treatment of those with disabilities. It's a subject that lies close to my heart as I myself work with people with various disabilities, and the thought of them enduring torture or being hidden away or murdered for simply being who they are pains me. If there is a lesson to be learned from this episode, I would say it is to be kind to children and have patience for those who cannot help their own shortcomings. I don't want to leave you guys on a sad note, so I thought I'd read one of my favorite stories for you. It is strongly linked to the theme of this episode, and it is in fact considered a classic. I hope you enjoy it. Pigman's Model by H.P. Lovecraft You needn't think I'm crazy, Elliot. Plenty of others have had queerer prejudices than this. Why don't you laugh at Oliver's grandfather who won't ride in a motor? If I don't like that damned subway, it's my own business, and we got here more quickly anyhow with the taxi. We'd have had to walk up the hill from Park Street if we'd taken the car. I know, I'm more nervous than I was when you saw me last year, but you don't need to hold a clinic over it. There's plenty of reason, God knows, and I fancy I'm lucky to be sane at all, 
Quite a third degree. You didn't used to be so inquisitive. Well, if you must hear it, and I don't know why you shouldn't. Maybe you ought to anyhow, for you kept riding me like a grieved parent when you heard I'd begun to cut the art club and keep away from Pikmin. Now that he's disappeared, I go around to the club once in a while, but my nerves aren't what they were. No, I don't know what's become of Pikmin, and I don't like to guess. You might have surmised I had some inside information when I dropped him, and that's why I don't want to think where he's gone. Let the police find what they can. It won't be much, judging from the fact that they don't even know yet of the old North End place he hired under the name of Peters. I'm not sure that I could find it again myself. Not that I'd ever try, even in broad daylight. Yes, I do know, or I'm afraid I know, why he maintained it. I'm coming to that. And I think you'll understand before I'm through why I don't tell the, poli the police. They would ask me to guide them, but I couldn't go back there even if I knew the way. There was something there, and now I can't use the subway or go down into cellars anymore. I should think you'd have known I didn't draw Pikmin for the same silly reasons that fussy old women like Dr. Reed or Joe Minot or Bosworth did. Morbid art doesn't shock me, and when a man has the genius Pikmin had, I feel it an honor to know him, no matter what direction his work takes. Boston never had a greater painter than Richard Upton Pikmin. I said it first, and I say it still, and I never swerved an inch either when he showed that ghoul feeding. That, you remember, was when Minot cut him. You know, it takes profound art and profound insight into nature to turn out stuff like pigments. Any magazine cover hack can splash paint around wildly and call it a nightmare or a witch's sabbath or a portrait of the devil. But only a great painter can make such a thing really scare or ring true. That's because only a real artist knows the actual anatomy of the terrible or the physiology of fear, the exact sort of lines and proportions that connect up with latent instincts or hereditary memories of fright, and the proper color contrasts and lightning effects to stir the dormant sense of strangeness. I don't have to tell you why a fuselli really brings a shiver, while a cheap ghost story frontispiece merely makes us laugh. There's something those fellows catch, beyond life, that they're able to make us catch for a second. Doré had it, Syme has it, Angarola of Chicago has it, and Pikmin had it as no man ever had before, or I hope to heaven, ever will again. Don't ask me what it is they see. You know, in ordinary art, there's all the difference in the world between the vital, breathing things from nature or models, and the artificial truck that commercial small fry reel off in a bare studio by rule. Well, I should say that the really weird artists has a kind of vision which makes models, or sums up what amounts to actual scenes from the spectral world he lives in. 
Anyhow, he manages to turn out results that differ from the pretender's mince pie dreams in just about the same way that the life painter's results differ from the concoctions of a correspondence school cartoonist. If I had ever seen what Pikmin saw... Now, here, let's have a drink before we get any deeper. Oh god, I wouldn't be alive if I'd ever seen what that man, if he was a man, saw. You recall that Pikmin's forte was faces. I don't believe anybody since Goya could put so much of sheer hell into a set of features or a twist of expression. And before Goya you have to go back to the medieval chaps who did the gargoyles and chimeras on Notre Dame and Mont Saint-Michel. They believed all sorts of things. And maybe they saw all sorts of things too. For the Middle Ages had some curious faces. I remember you were asking Pikmin yourself once, the year before you went away, wherever in thunder he got such ideas and visions. Wasn't that a nasty laugh he gave you? It was partly because of that laugh that Reed dropped him. Reed, you know, had just taken up comparative pathology and was full of pompous inside stuff about the biological or evolutionary significance of this or that mental or physical symptom. He said Pikmin repelled him more and more every day, and almost frightened him toward the last. That the fellow's features and expression were slowly developing in a way he didn't like, in a way that wasn't human. He had a lot of talk about diet and said Pikmin must be abnormal and eccentric to the last degree. I suppose you told Reed if you and he had any correspondence over it that he'd let Pikmin's painting get on his nerves or harrow up his imagination. I know I told him myself, then. But keep in mind that I didn't draw Pikmin for anything like this. On the contrary, my admiration for him kept growing, for that ghoul-feeding was a tremendous achievement. As you know, the club wouldn't exhibit it and the Museum of Fine Arts wouldn't accept it as a gift, and I can add that nobody would buy it, so Pikmin had it right in his house till he went. Now his father has it in Salem, you know Pikmin comes of old Salem stock, and had a witch ancestor hanged in 1692. I got into the habit of calling on Pikmin quite often, especially after I began making notes for a monograph on weird art. It was probably his work which put the idea into my head and I found him a mine of data and suggestions when I came to develop it. He showed me all the paintings and drawings he had about, including some pen and ink sketches that would, I verily believe, have gotten kicked out of the club if any of the members had seen them. Before long I was pretty nearly a devotee and would listen for hours like a schoolboy to art theories and philosophic speculations wild enough to qualify him for the Danvers Asylum. My hero worship, coupled with the fact that people generally, generally were commencing to have less and less to do with him, made him get very confidential with me. And one evening, he hinted that if I were fairly close-mouthed and not too squeamish, he might show me something rather unusual, 
something a bit stronger than anything he had in the house. You know, he said, there are things that won't do for Newberry Street. Things that are out of place here and that can't be conceived here anyhow. It's my business to catch the overtones of the soul, and you won't find those in a parvenu set of artificial streets on Maidland. Back Bay isn't Boston. It isn't anything yet, because it's had no time to pick up memories and attract local spirits. If there are any ghosts here, they're the tame ghosts of a salt marsh and a shallow cove. And I want human ghosts. The ghosts of beings highly organized enough to have looked on hell and know the meaning of what they saw. The place for an artist to live is the North End. If any esthete were sincere, he'd put up with the slums for the sake of the mass traditions. God, man, don't you realize that places like that weren't merely made but actually grew? Generation after generation lived and felt and died there and in days when people weren't afraid to live and feel and die. Don't you know there was a mill on Cobbs Hill in 1632 that half the present streets were laid out by 1650? I can show you houses that have stood two centuries and a half more. Houses that have witnessed what would make a modern house crumble into powder. What do moderns know of life and the forces behind it? You call the Salem witchcraft a delusion, but I'll wage my four times great-grandmother could have told you things. They hanged her on Gallows Hill with Cotta Maffer looking sanctimoniously on. Maffer, damn him, was afraid somebody might succeed in kicking free of this accursed cage of monotony. I wish someone had laid a spell on him or sucked his blood in the night. I can show you a house he lived in. And I can show you another one he was afraid to enter in spite of all his fine bold talk. He knew things he didn't dare put into that stupid magnalia or that puerile wonders of the invisible world. Did you know the whole North End once had a set of tunnels that kept certain people in touch with each other's houses and the burying ground in the sea? Let them prosecute and persecute above ground. Things went on every day that they couldn't reach, and voices laughed at night that they couldn't place. Out of ten surviving houses built before 1700 and not moved since, I'll wager that in eight I can show you something queer in the cellar. There's hardly a month that you don't read of workmen finding bricked up arches and wells leading nowhere in this or that old place as it comes down. You could see one near Henchman Street from the Elevated last year. There were witches and what their spells summoned, pirates and what they brought in from the sea, smugglers, privateers, and I'm telling you, people knew how to live and how to enlarge the bounds of life in the old times. This wasn't the only world a bold and wise man could know, and to think of today in contrast with such pale pink brains that even a club of supposed artists gets shudders and convulsions if a picture goes beyond the feelings of a Beacon Street tea table. The only saving grace of the present is that it's too damn stupid to question the past very closely. What do maps and records and guidebooks really tell of the North End? 
Ha, I guess I'll guarantee to lead you to 30 or 40 alleys and networks of alleys north of Prince Street that aren't suspected by 10 living beings outside of the foreigners that swarm them. And what do those Dagos know of their meaning? No, Thurber. These ancient places are dreaming gorgeously and overflowing with wonder and terror and escapes from the commonplace. And yet, there's not a living soul to understand or profit by them. Or rather, there's only one living soul. For, you see, I haven't been digging around in the past for nothing. Listen, you're interested in this sort of thing. What if I told you that I've got another studio up there where I can catch the night spirit of antique horror and paint things that I couldn't even think of in Newberry Street? Naturally, I don't tell those cursed old maids at the club with Reed, damn him, whispering even as it is that I'm some sort of a monster bound down the toboggan of reverse rev evolution. Yes, Thurber, I decided long ago that one must paint terror as well as beauty from life. So I did some exploring in places where I had reason to know terror lives. I've got a place that I don't believe three living Nordic men besides myself have ever seen. It isn't so very far from the elevated as distance goes, but it's centuries away as the soul goes. I took it because of the queer old brick well in the cellar. One of the sort I told you about. The shack's almost tumbling down so that nobody else would live there, and I'd hate to tell you how little I'll pay for it. The windows are boarded up, but I like that all the better, since I don't want daylight for what I do. I paint in the cellar, where the inspiration is thickest, but I have other rooms furnished on the ground floor. A Sicilian owns it, and I've hired it under the name of Peters. Now, if you're game, I'll take you there tonight. I think you'd enjoy the pictures, for as I said, I've let myself go a bit there. It's no best tour. I sometimes do it on foot, for I don't want to attract attention with a taxi in such a place. We can take the shuttle at the south station for Battery Street, and after that, the walk isn't much. Well, Elliot, there wasn't much for me to do after that harangue but to keep myself from running instead of walking for the first vacant cab we could sight. We changed to the elevated at the south station, and at about 12 o'clock had climbed down the steps at Battery Street and struck along the old waterfront past Constitution Wharf. I didn't keep track of the cross streets and can't tell you yet which it was we turned up, but I know it was in Greenall Lane. When we did turn, it was to climb through the deserted length of the oldest and dirtiest alley I ever saw in my life, with crumbling looking gables, broken small paned windows, and archaic chimneys that stood out half disintegrated against the moonlit sky. I don't believe there were three houses in sight that hadn't been standing in Cotton Mather's time. Certainly I glimpsed at least two with an overhang and once I thought I saw a peaked roofline of the almost forgotten pre-Gambrel type, though antiquarians tell us there are none left in Boston. From that alley, which had a dim light, we turned to the left into an equally silent 
and still narrower alley with no light at all, and in a minute made what I think was an obtuse angled bend toward the right in the dark. Not long after this, Pigman produced a flashlight and revealed an antediluvian ten-panel door that looked damnably worm-eaten. Unlocking it, he ushered me into a barren hallway with what was once splendid dark oak paneling. Simple, of course, but thrillingly suggestive of the times of Andros and Phipps and the witchcraft. Then he took me through a door on the left, lit an oil lamp, and told me to make myself at home. Now, Elliot, I'm what the man in the street would call fairly hard-boiled, but I'll confess that what I saw on the walls of that room gave me a bad turn. They were pictures, you know, the ones he couldn't paint or even show in Newberry Street. And he was right when he said he had let himself go. Here, have another drink. I need one anyhow. There is no use in my trying to tell you what they were like, because the awful, the blasphemous horror and the unbelievable loathsomeness and moral fetor came from simple touches quite beyond the power of words to classify. There was none of the exotic technique you see in Sydney Syme, none of the trans-Saturnian landscape and lunar fungi that Clark Ashton Smith uses to freeze the blood. The backgrounds were mostly old churchyards, deep woods, cliffs by the sea, brick tunnels, ancient paneled rooms, or simple vaults of masonry. Cobbs Hill Burying Ground, which could not be many blocks away from this very house, was a favorite scene. The madness and the monstrosity lay in the figures in the foreground. For Pickman's morbid art was predominantly one of demonic portraiture. These figures were seldom completely human, but often approached humanity in varying degree. Most of the bodies, while roughly bipedal, had a forward slumping and a vaguely canine cast. The texture of the majority was a kind of unpleasant rubberiness. Ugh, I can see them now. Their occupations, well, don't ask me to be too precise. They were usually feeding, I won't say on what. They were sometimes shown in groups in cemeteries or underground passages and often appeared to be in battle over their prey, or rather their treasure trove. Occasionally, the things were shown leaping through open windows at night or squatting on the chests of sleepers, worrying at their throats. One canvas showed a ring of them baying about a hanged witch on Gallows Hill, whose dead face held a close kinship to theirs. But don't get the idea that it was all this hideous business of theme and setting which struck me faint. I'm not a three-year-old kid, and I'd seen much like this before. It was the faces, Elliot, those accursed faces that leered and slavered out of the canvas with the very breath of life. By God, man, I verily believe they were alive. That nauseous wizard had woken the fires of hell in pigment, and his brush had been a nightmare spawning wand. There was one thing called 
the lesson. Heaven pity me that I ever saw it. Listen, can you fancy a squatting circle of nameless, dog-like things in a churchyard teaching a small child how to feed like them? The price of a changeling, I suppose. You know the old myth about how the weird people leave their spawn in cradles in exchange for the human babies they steal. Pigman was showing what happens to those stolen babies, how they grow up. And then I began to see a hideous relationship in the faces of the human and non-human figures. He was in all his gradations of morbidity between the frankly non-human and the degradedly human, establishing a sardonic linkage in evolution. The dog things were developed for mortals. And no sooner had I wondered what he made of their own young, as left with mankind in the form of changelings, that my eye caught a picture embodying that very thought. It was that of an ancient Puritan interior, a heavily beamed room with lattice windows, a settle, and clumsy 17th century furniture, with the family sitting about while the father read from the scriptures. Every face but one showed nobility and reverence, but that one reflected the mockery of the pit. It was that of a young man in years and no doubt belonged to a supposed son of that pious father, but in essence it was the kin of the unclean things. It was their changeling, and in a spirit of supreme irony, Pinkman had given the features a very perceptible resemblance to his own. By this time, Pinkman lit the lamp in an adjoining room and was politely holding the door open for me, asking me if I would care to see his modern studies. I hadn't been able to give him much of my opinions. I was too speechless with fright and loathing, but I think he fully understood and felt highly complimented. And now, I want to assure you again, Elliot, that I'm no mollycoddle to scream at anything which shows a bit of departure from the usual. I'm middle-aged and decently sophisticated, and I guess you saw enough of me in France to know that I'm not easily knocked out. Remember, too, that I just about recovered my wind and gotten used to those frightful pictures which turned colonial New England into a kind of annex of hell. Well. In spite of all this, that next room forced a real scream out of me, and I had to clutch at the doorway to keep from keeling over. The other chamber had shown a pack of ghouls and witches overrunning the world of our forefathers, but this one brought the horror right into our own daily life. God, how that man could paint! There was a study called Subway Accident, in which a flock of the vile things were clambering up for some unknown catacomb through a crack in the floor of the Bolston Street subway and attacking a crowd of people on the platform. Another showed a dance on Cobb's Hill among the tombs with the background of today. Then there were any number of cellar views with monsters creeping in through holes and rifts in the masonry and grinning as they squatted behind barrels or furnaces and waited for their first victim to descend the stairs. 
One disgusting canvas seemed to depict a vast cross-section of Beacon Hill, with ant-like armies of the mythic monsters squeezing themselves through burrows that honeycombed the ground. Dances in the modern cemeteries were freely pictured, and another conception somehow shocked me more than all the rest. A scene in an unknown vault, where scores of the beasts crowded about one who held a well-known Boston guidebook and was evidently reading aloud. All were pointing to a certain passage, and every face seemed so distorted with epileptic and reverberant laughter that I almost thought I heard the fiendish echoes. The title of the picture was Holmes, Lowell, and Longfellow Lie Buried in Mount Auburn. As I gradually steadied myself and got readjusted to the second room of devilry and morbidity, I began to analyze some of the points in my sickening loathing. In the first place, I said to myself, these things repelled me because of the utter inhumanity and callous cruelty they showed in Pikmin. The fellow must be a relentless enemy of all mankind to take such glee in the torture of brain and flesh and the degradation of the mortal tenement. In the second place, they terrified me because of their very greatness. Their art was the art that convinced. When we saw the pictures, we saw the demons themselves and were afraid of them. And the queer part was that Pikmin got none of his power from the use of selectiveness or bizarrery. Nothing was blurred, distorted, or conventionalized. Outlines were sharp and lifelike, and details were almost painfully defined. And the faces... It was not any mere artist's interpretation that we saw. It was pandemonium itself, crystal clear in stark objectivity. That was it. The man was not a fantasist or romanticist at all. He did not even try to give us the churning, prismatic ephemera of dreams, but coldly and sardonically reflected some stable, mechanistic and well-established horror world which he saw fully, brilliantly, squarely and unfalteringly. God knows what that world can have been, or where he ever glimpsed the blasphemous shapes that loped and trotted and crawled through it. But whatever the baffling source of his images, one thing was plain. Pigment was, in every sense, in conception and in execution, a thorough, painstaking and almost scientific realist. My host was now leading the way down cellar to his actual studio, and I braced myself for some hellish effects among the unfinished canvases. As we reached the bottom of the damp stairs, he turned his flashlight to a corner of the large open space at hand, revealing the circular brick curb of what was evidently a great well in the earthen floor. We walked nearer, and I saw that it must be five feet across, with walls a good foot thick and some six inches above the ground level. Solid work of the 17th century. Or I was much mistaken. That, Pickman said, was the kind of thing he had been talking about. An aperture of the network of tunnels that used to undermine the hill. I noticed idly that it did not seem to be bricked up, and that a heavy disk of wood formed the apparent cover. 
Thinking of the things this well must have been connected with if Pac-Man's wild hints had not been mere rhetoric. I shivered slightly, then turned to follow him up a step and through a narrow door into a room of fair size, provided with a wooden floor and furnished as a studio. An acetylene gas outfit gave the light necessary for work. The unfinished pictures on easels or propped against the walls were as ghastly as the finished ones upstairs and showed the painstaking methods of the artist. Scenes were blocked out with extreme care and penciled guidelines told of the minute exactitude which Pikmin used in getting the right perspective and proportions. The man was great. I say it even now, knowing as much as I do. A large camera on a table excited my notice, and Pigman told me that he used it in taking scenes for backgrounds so that he might paint them from photographs in the studio instead of carting his outfit around the town for this or that view. He thought a photograph quite as good as an actual scene or model for sustained work and declared he employed them regularly. There was something very disturbing about the nauseous sketches and half-finished monstrosities that leered around from every side of the room, and when Pigman suddenly unveiled a huge canvas on the side away from the light, I could not for the life of me keep back a loud scream, the second I had emitted that night. It echoed and echoed through the dim vaultings of that ancient and nitrous cellar, and I had to choke back a flood of reaction that threatened to burst out as hysterical laughter. I don't know how much was real and how much was feverish fancy. It doesn't seem to me that Earth can hold a dream like that. It was a colossal and nameless blasphemy with glaring red eyes, and it held in bony claws a thing that had been a man, gnawing at the head as a child nibbles at a stick of candy. Its position was a kind of crouch, and as one looked, one felt that at any moment it might drop its present prey and seek a juicier morsel. But damn it all, it wasn't even the fiendish subject that made it such an immortal fountain, head of all panic. Not that, nor the dog face with its pointed ears, bloodshot eyes, flat nose and drooling lips. It wasn't the scaly claws, nor the mold-caked body, nor the half-hooved feet. None of these, though any of them might well have driven an excitable man to madness. It was the technique, Elliot, the cursed, the impious, the unnatural technique. As I am a living being, I never elsewhere saw the actual breath of life so fused into a canvas. The monster was there. It glared and gnawed and gnawed and glared, and I know that only a suspension of nature's laws could ever let a man paint a thing like that without a model, without some glimpse of the nether world which no mortal unsold to the fiend has never had. Pinned with a thumbtack to a vacant part of the canvas was a piece of paper now badly curled up. Probably, I thought, a photograph from which Pikmin meant to paint a background, as hideous as the nightmare it was to enhance. I reached out to uncurl and look at it, when suddenly I saw Pikmin start as if shot. He had been listening with peculiar intensity, ever since my shocked scream had waked unaccustomed echoes in the dark cellar, and now he seemed struck with a fright, which 
though not comparable to my own, had in it more of the physical than of the spiritual. He drew a revolver and mo motioned me to silence, then stepped out into the main cellar and closed the door behind him. I think I was paralyzed for an instant. Imitating Pigman's listening, I fancied I heard a faint scurrying sound somewhere and a series of squeals or bleats in a direction I couldn't determine. I thought of huge rats and shuddered. Then there came a subdued sort of clatter which somehow set me all in goose flesh. A furtive, groping kind of clatter, though I can't attempt to convey what I mean in words. It was like heavy wood falling on stone or brick. What did that make me think of? It came again, and louder. There was a vibration as if the wood had fallen farther than it had fallen before. After that followed a sharp grating noise, a shouted gibberish from Pikmin, and the deafening discharge of all six chambers of a revolver fired spectacularly as a lion tamer might fire in the air for effect. A muffled squeal or squawk and a thud. Then more wood and brick grating, a pause and the opening of the door, at which I'll confess I started violently. Pikmin reappeared with his smoking weapon, cursing the bloated rats that infested the ancient wall. The deuce knows what they eat, Thurber, he grinned, for those archaic tunnels touch graveyard and witch den and a sea coast. But whatever it is, they must have run short, for they were devilish anxious to get out. Your yelling stirred them up, I fancy. Better be cautious in these old places. Our rodent friends are the one drawback, though I sometimes think they're a positive asset by way of atmosphere and color. Well, Elliot, that was the end of the night's adventure. Pikmin had promised to show me the place, and heaven knows he had done it. He led me out of that tangle of alleys in another direction, it seems, for when we sighted a lamppost, we were in a half-familiar street with monotonous rows of mingled tenement blocks and old houses. Charter Street, it turned out to be, but I was too flustered to notice just where we hid it. We were too late for the elevated and walked back downtown through Hanover Street. I remember that walk. We switched from Tremont up Beacon, and Pikmin left me at the corner of Joy, where I turned off. I never spoke to him again. Why did I drop him off? Don't be impatient. Wait till I ring for coffee. We've had enough of the other stuff, but I for one need something. No. It wasn't the paintings I saw in that place, though I'll swear they were enough to get him ostracized in nine-tenths of the homes and clubs of Boston. And I guess you won't wonder now why I have to stare clear of subways and cellars. It was something I found in my coat the next morning. You know, the curled up paper tacked to that frightful canvas in the cellar, the thing I thought was a photograph of some scene he meant to use as a background for that monster. That last scare had come while I was reaching to uncurl it, and it seems I had vaguely crumpled it into my pocket. But here's the coffee. 
Take a black, Elliot, if you're wise. So yes, the paper was the reason I dropped Pikmin. Richard Upton Pikmin, the greatest artist I have ever known, and the foulest being that ever leaped the bounds of life into the pits of myth and madness. Elliot, old Reed was right. He wasn't strictly human. Either he was born in strange shadow, or he'd found a way to unlock the Forbidden Gate. It's all the same now, for he's gone. Back into the fabulous darkness he loved to haunt. Here, let's have the chandelier going. Don't ask me to explain, or even conjecture, about what I burned. Don't ask me either what lay behind that mole-like scrambling pigman was so keen to pass off as rats. There are secrets, you know, which might have come down from old Salem times and caught a mather tells even stranger things. You know how damn lifelike Pikmin's paintings were, and how we all wondered where he got those faces. Well, that paper wasn't a photograph of any background after all. What it showed was simply the monstrous being he was painting on that awful canvas. It was the model he was using, and its background was merely the wall of the cellar studio in minute detail. But by God, Elliot, it was a photograph from life. And that's it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. Next month, I'll do something a bit special since it's Christmas and all. And... I think I have a certain monster in mind that at least the majority of you will enjoy. So, until then, I wish you sweet nightmares. <laughs>